1: Hi, y'all. Welcome to Punching Out. I'm Noah, and I'm joined by Louise. Hey. And Ryan. Hi. Now, as we're recording this, it's Sunday, March 3rd, and I think one or two days ago, the president took to the stage at CPAC and announced that he was going to sign an executive order requiring colleges and universities that wanted to compete for federal research dollars to quote-unquote support free speech. Obviously, the quotes I just made around that are 72-point air quotes because there is no way in hell that that's actually what he means by that. But we thought it would be a nice chance to talk about the way that we perceive colleges culturally as institutions of liberal attitudes and free thinking and how in many ways, the reality doesn't live up to that image and how it's most obvious in the way that colleges treat the people that work for them. Yeah.
2: We're entering March now, like you said, and, you know, w- probably the biggest example of that and what we're going to lead off the show talking about is college sports, you know, which have, which rely on unpaid labor and effectively in the form of probably thousands of student athletes, you know, who aren't getting paid for what they do, what they provide to these schools beyond the value of, you know, whatever scholarship they may be receiving, which who can say how valuable that really is?
1: Yeah, it's a a completely arbitrary value. A school can slap a price tag on... What they're selling is the right to get a degree from that school, Mm -hmm. ultimately. They're not, you know, that's not a thing that you can... It's not tangible. Mm -hmm. And so... When when they give you when they give a student a half scholarship, what
2: they're really saying is, we're giving you half of what we think we're worth. And you know, a few weeks ago we had that episode on student debt, and we don't mean to belittle you know free education, considering you know how much other people are paying for it. But in the same way that you know a scholarship does have real value, you know, in the days of company script, that too had value. But we have since phased out the idea of companies paying their workers in, you know, credit that can only be used where they work. The idea that student athletes, as they're called, that, you know, the people playing the games that generate so much revenue are limited to only a scholarship. That is, they can't make more than that is wild when you consider the revenues being produced here. Uh, just March Madness alone the TV contract for that is worth more than a billion dollars a year coming from various networks CBS TBS et cetera. and that money doesn't go to the players on the court the people everybody wants to see play and that's it's unjust
3: yeah it's unjust it's odd too because the the going argument is that in order to make the game fair and everything, there's so many regulations from the NCAA about what the players can be compensated. So basically, the only thing they can be given is the scholarship. There's so many other regulations that limit what they can be given. Like you can't give a student athlete like too many extra jerseys, or that could be considered. There,
2: there used to be limits on right. like the. Type of spread you could have on your bagels, right? Because continental breakfast was allowed, but,
3: you know, <laughs> but right, yeah, you were
2: limited to like cream cheese,
3: right? And then every few years, there's a sports scandal that's this college was had these wild parties with lots of inappropriate things going on at these parties in order to get these student athletes. Most to come, so.
2: NCAA scandals are just you know athletes receiving money, yeah. Yep. yeah they, they've established this incredible bureaucracy now mm-hmm. to you know enforce their rules about whether athletes you know receive money right from, not just from the school but from like uh outside sources you know like Ohio State had a big scandal several years back because players had received free tattoos or <laughs> they yep. had uh exchanged their you know championship rings for goods and services
1: right
3: and this is all to keep the games quote-unquote fair but they aren't they're They're not not. like they're not
1: yeah no in march madness you've got various teams that are just famously good and always blow out the competition
2: to use the example of football in the each of the last four years alabama and clemson has played each other in the playoffs there's only four teams in the playoffs and they've been two of them four years in a row yeah so there's, as we've said before,
1: parity, you, you cannot assure parity by regulating it into existence in this way. That's not going to work. Right. And the worst part, I mean, this is all crap of the highest order, but when it comes to the NCAA, it's especially bad because those rules don't even apply evenly. Mm-hmm. So it, for basketball and football especially, those programs are I would say the two most popular ones. And so they're watched very heavily. But then you look at programs like swimming or running programs where you might have athletes that are competing in college and then also competing in things like the Olympics. And they're allowed to earn money from some of those things. Mm -hmm. There was a case of a swimmer who is in the NCAA. This was some years ago, I think about 2014 or 2016. Uh He... Competed for Singapore in the Olympics. He beat Michael Phelps. His name was Joseph Schooling, okay. and he won seven hundred forty thousand dollars from the government of Singapore for winning a gold medal in swimming. Now the NCAA had changed the rules to allow that to happen.
2: Okay, so on Competing the one hand, for
1: your country, yeah,
2: it's allowed,
1: and for the U.S. Olympians, it's allowed as well. And now they, I think, they allowed small uh, gifts to football players for making a bowl game okay. to sort of entice that but it and the point of all of this is that the NCAA claims this ideal of as you said Ryan the student athlete mm-hmm. but number 1 they're not even willing to adhere to that when they realize you know when they mm-hmm. when they decide that the cost of that injustice is too great to withstand when it's too the...
2: big a PR hit exactly
1: yeah. literally took the words right out of my mouth but um it's it's a designation that they have come up with precisely to shape the perception of the public on this. Mm
2: -hmm. And they talk about, you know, the sanctity of amateurism, but amateurism for who? Because the coaches aren't amateurs. Right. The, you know, offensive line coaches aren't amateurs. They're often getting, you know, large sums of money from these universities because where else is the money going to go? It's not going to the players.
3: It, yeah, it's not God going forbid. to other parts of the school, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. But yeah, if you look at who's the highest paid public employee in each state, it's nine times out of ten, the football coach of the biggest university. Or the
1: and, basketball coach. Yeah, yeah, and the remaining one out of ten, it's the basketball coach. There's like one state where it's a president of a university. Yeah.
3: Which but, also, no, that's also nah. not cool, but okay. <laughs> and
1: it's it's particularly bad because this is something that – um. The players have basically no institutional support whatsoever. There is no constituency supporting them because March Madness and college football are hugely popular sports. People who believe that the players should be paid, who have, I would say, the correct opinions on these things, will still watch every game. They will still participate. So you can't pass up that kind of – you can't argue with that kind of popularity in a way.
2: Mm. The, the people who are most passionate are passionate because they're already fans. Exactly.
1: And so you end up with this problem where there's just no institutional support for them. The courts have, without exception, cited with the NCAA, cited with conferences, cited with universities against the players every time that they've been able to. So they're basically fighting for their rights against everyone. Mm-hmm.
2: I don't know if you saw this a few weeks back. There was a big game between Duke and UNC, historic basketball rivals. Uh, tickets for it were going for like $2,400, like on par with the Super Bowl. It, Cameron Indoor Stadium at, at right. Duke is much smaller than a Super Bowl venue, but Barack Obama was there, yep. various other you know celebrities and stars. And for many of them, the reason that game in particular was such a big ticket item was Zion Williamson, who is Duke's big freshman star, he is, you know, expected to go number one in the NBA draft, and 30 seconds into the game, he slides along the floor, and his shoe breaks, his foot goes out of it, and he leaves the game with a knee injury. I I don't think he's come back to play yet, but he's been listed as day-to-day.
1: Supposedly, he's okay, according to Coach Krzyzewski. it's, It's
2: not thought to be a serious issue, but... It's something that kept, has kept him from playing. Uh, there was an article in Deadspin recently, you know, arguing that he shouldn't come back to Duke because what does he gain? You know, he's not going to get paid for it. He's already cemented his spot as the top incoming talent to the NBA. He incurs a lot of risk and not much benefit for continuing to play for Duke. It's only because the NBA has instituted a the one and done rule requiring players to be one year out of high school, that he comes to Duke in the first place. I'm quoting from the article now. So long as the NCAA goes on refusing to pay athletes for their labor and the NBA adheres to its one-and-done rule, the only sensible argument to be made in favor of a player like Williamson participating in college basketball rather than going to play in Europe or taking a year off is that it provides a talent showcase. He's showcased his talent already. He was, he was already a big name in high school, right? Yeah. So. There's a reason he ends up at Duke, because yeah. you know they recruit some of the best players in the country. And there's a parallel to this, which is in college football, which is a much more dangerous sport than basketball, to be fair. We've seen several examples of players who feel they have a shot at the NFL draft, skipping their team's final game, the bowl game, in order to you know, stay healthy and avoid potential injury and the loss of you know hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars that such an injury might cost them. Uh, there was a a headline in the Chicago Tribune which didn't really acknowledge the uh, irony, but the headline is, several players skipping bowl games with bonuses at stake for coaches. So <laughs> there's a <laughs> fundamental <laughs> imbalance at play
1: there. That, nice. That's got to be Tronk's influence, right? The fact <laughs> that we're just explicitly siding with the coaches there.
3: Who cares? Ugh. Yeah.
1: What is it? The the top ten paid coaches in 2015 or whatever. Mm-hmm. The top one was obviously Nick Saban at Alabama, and Saban. he was yes, earning yes. like 11.5
2: million dollars. Mm-hmm. So these people are doing fine. I, I is, think the figure cited in the article is like six coaches with the potential to earn 400 thousand extra dollars total. So
3: that's the, the equivalent in my world is the retail worker being blamed for for not giving 110% because the Wall Street guy uh, who's trading the stock for the company isn't going to get his Christmas bonus. Yep. Like, who gives a crap? Number one. I
1: don't. And number two, that specific case of players deciding, I'm not going to risk the injury, it particularly resonates with NCAA history. Mm-hmm. That's the entire reason that the student athlete designation exists. Mm-hmm. The first executive director of the NCAA invented that so that students who were athletes or athletes who were students, you could argue, Mm -hmm. in in some ways.
3: That's the correct one. Couldn't
1: um, sue for workman's compensation. Like, there are people who have been paralyzed, who have died, Mm -hmm. who have had horrendous injuries, who've been maimed in these games. And the way the NCAA deals with it is by instituting this idea that the school will, out of its beneficence and mercy, Mm -hmm. which is infinite, (laughs) like an ever-flowing river, will take care of you for four years following the injury. Four years. You might have a much more difficult time just doing basic tasks and things Mm -hmm. like that at the age of 19. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you get four years of medical care from your university, and then you're pushed down into the real world with everybody else. So that's fine. That's okay.
2: Generally, it's a bad idea to have to rely on someone else's, you know, beneficence, you know, To have to rely on them being a good person or, you know, because that means you have no power. That means, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't really make them do anything for you. Absolutely.
1: And again, it's not like athletes, it's not like athletes in college are taking this laying down. They are trying to organize. I think it was Northwestern Northwestern, a while back that- the, the athletes there tried to actually organize. Form
2: a union. And for the originally the NLRB in Chicago, I think, had ruled that, yeah, that's, that's okay. And then later it the, overturned yeah. them for...
1: The federal, I yes, think, federal. National Labor Relations Board. And that happened during the Obama presidency. Mm-hmm. So cool. and this is yet another example of how we can't really rely on partisan politics to get us out of this mess. You've got athletes who just, again... It, this is a bipartisan agreement. People say they want to pay players and they say that they want players to be compensated fairly. But I would guess that on most people's political priorities, this is pretty low. Mm-hmm.
2: And what are the arguments re- that the schools make against not paying players? Uh, we've talked about the parity argument, which is obviously crap. Just, yeah. We've talked about you know the sanctity of amateurism, which I don't think anybody really cares about. No. no.
3: Or believes in. Yeah. I don't think
1: Mark Emmert believes that anytime he opens his mouth. That mm-hmm. would be the president of the NCAA folks.
2: Mm. But one of the other arguments they've made and one that maybe has a bit more salience is, you know, the idea that athletic departments are losing money. This is something that they constantly trot out, you know, as, you know, to say, "Okay, we uh, we would like to pay you, but we really can't. You know, don't look at, you know, the billion-dollar TV contracts. We're losing money on this business." And a lot of that is reliant on some fuzzy economics and some fuzzy accounting. Um, there was a, an article in Vice a few years back that I always think to. It was about the University of Alabama at Birmingham had shuttered its football program, citing you know, losses to the athletic department. But digging into those numbers, it became obvious that you can make a profit look like a loss. I'm quoting from the article it was written by Aaron Gordon. Quote, here's an example based on the one provided in the report. Take two athletes on half scholarships who are identical in every way except one is from Alabama and the other from Tennessee. The Alabama resident pays in-state tuition of 7000 a year. The Tennessee resident pays out-of-state tuition of $15,000 a year. With 50% scholarships, the in-state athlete will pay 3500 while the out-of-state athlete pays 7500 Meanwhile, the athletic department is billed for the same amounts due to the 50% scholarships. And what that amounts to is the out-of-state athlete paying the university more ends up costing the athletic department more, even though the university as a whole is getting more money as a result. The comparison in the article is like if you paid yourself to do something and you only counted the money leaving one hand but not entering the other...
1: Well, and that's one of the things that the article argues. It also argues the article mentions that athletic that profits that are related to mm-hmm. college sports are usually not channeled through the athletics department. <laughs> so the athletics department exists to be, you know, the Thanksgiving turkey. It's the loss leader. Right. It, it
2: absorbs all of the costs, but it doesn't get a lot of the profits, yeah, and it, so it can, like if you buy a hockey jersey from the school bookstore, that probably isn't going as money to the athletic department, but you wouldn't buy a hockey jersey if the school didn't have a hockey team, probably
1: I mean I would that'd be hilarious <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I would do that too no, and it's it's the to be fair to this because this mm-hmm. matters to me cuz I'm a dork. That accounting practice of of like the university paying itself so to speak mm-hmm. in the scholarship money is really not that unusual and mm-hmm. chances are good that if you've ever worked with a nonprofit it works exactly like that. The the thing I will say mm-hmm. is that it is very misleading because what they're doing is they're cherry picking and and like exactly like Noah said, they're putting the costs all on one department and splitting the revenue across others so that overall there is still a net profit.
2: So that it looks like the athletic department is doing Mm -hmm. money.
3: Exactly. So the cost of the scholarships comes from one area, but the revenue for the games and everything is going to other areas. And it it is misleading. It's, It's straight up misleading. Um, which is well, why economic literacy is important. And, uh, and
1: I, I particularly yeah. like that you mentioned if you've ever worked with a nonprofit, right? Because right. that's what these universities are. Exactly.
3: And that's, that's part of the way they can get away with this is, is you know that beneficence, as you said, comes partly from the idea that these are nonprofits. These are supposed to be neutral institutions mm-hmm. that not, don't necessarily actively have the interest of, of their workers and student-athletes at heart, but are not actively working against them. But they are definitely actively working against them in so many very subtle and nefarious ways.
1: Like universities are not, you know, unlike a for-profit corporation, their only obligation is not supposed to be, officially speaking, to their shareholders. Right. Mm -hmm. To, to, you know, uh, maximize
2: profit. The trustees in this case.
1: Yes. That's not supposed to be the deal. But what we are seeing more and more and more Mm -hmm. is that in every case, somehow, Mm -hmm. these supposed bastions of intellectualism and the life of the mind always seem to pick the decision that makes the most money Mm -hmm. and very often at the highest possible moral cost.
3: Mm -hmm. Semi-related anecdote. When I got out of school and my school started begging for money, one of the reasons they gave to me, as why I should give them money is because it would make my degree more valuable. Oh, because if because Talk alumni about. donations go into their ratings, and the higher the school is rated, the more valuable "quote unquote" your degree is, which is complete bullcrap. Because it's valuable because I'm educated now, but that's that's what they're doing is in order to increase the standing in the school, you have to get good athletes and everything like that. So ultimately everything that goes into this decision to not pay athletes and to not pay so many others and to make sure their endowment is big is to grow the brand of the school Uh in order to make it more valuable brand.
1: Uh Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And very often, like, I'm sorry, but if I say, if I talk about the university of Alabama, Mm -hmm. nobody thinks I'm talking about the academic prowess of you know the the university system, there are certainly universities for which that is the case, mm-hmm. but for a lot of these schools that are famous because primarily of their athletic programs, you know the brand that they're making valuable isn't even what the university is supposed to be there for. It's for something that is ultimately orthogonal to this. I, I come from a very different system in this regard. Um, when I was a kid, you know we did have school sports but they were kind of not nearly as valued as they are for the students that I teach. Mm -hmm. And I've since learned that that, even that is odd for, I guess, Latin America. And in most of those countries, you really wouldn't play for your school. You'd have a travel team or a club that you play through. And there's a very different support system for that. But because we've chosen to do it in this country through the high school, university, and then professional system, at least Mm -hmm. ostensibly, it creates this choke point that allows universities to sit on all of this money and shuffle it around in ways that are Enronian, I guess is the word. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, you know, sports are not the only ways in which they're doing this. You know, we're, what we're going to talk about as this episode goes on is we're going to talk about what they're doing to their other employees, you know, whether it be adjuncts or grad students. And we'll get into that after this break.
3: You're listening to Punching Out on
0: W-A-Y-O-L-P Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening,
3: but we are.
2: Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah, Hale, and Lou. Hi, guys. In our first segment, we talked about college athletics and the ways in which Colleges are getting rich off of their players, off of their basketball and football players especially. But what we've wanted to do with this episode is talk more broadly about the ways in which colleges are exploiting all of their employees, basically. But specifically here, we're going to be talking about adjunct professors and the academics who, you know, make college run but nevertheless are treated like crap.
1: So we think it might be useful some of you may not know what an adjunct professor is. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, that wasn't a term that was in really in common parlance until a few years back. Now, originally, what an adjunct professor is supposed to be is somebody that a college or university takes on to teach a class in an area where maybe they don't have a professor who can teach it. So for example, I took a class in education law at a local university. Now, the place where I took it doesn't have a law school, so they hired a guy to come in and teach that class in addition to you know he has a full-time lawyering job where he does lawyer things. And so that makes perfect sense to me because that's somebody who has a skill set that you otherwise don't have access to within your structure. So you hire that person to teach that class. That's what an adjunct is supposed to be. What it actually is these days is an overworked and underpaid person who actually has a degree in the field that they're teaching, but the university has chosen to not pay them what they're worth.
2: Overworked and underpaid is a very good word choice there because it's the headline of a Washington Post article I came across, you know, adjunct adjunct faculty are overworked and underpaid. I'll quote from it here more scholars have been forced to take on a series of adjunct positions at different schools in order to make a living some teach two or three classes at one campus and then race off to a different school to teach another course or two at george mason university where i teach english fewer than 40 percent of the courses offered by my department last year were taught by full-time faculty the rest were mainly taught by adjuncts, including a large percentage of the introductory composition and literature courses that all GMU students must take. The chances are good, then, that a student will be taught his or her English not by a well-paid full-time professor, but by an overworked and underpaid adjunct. I bring this up, this article in particular, for a couple of reasons. One, it mirrors, if you'll recall, what Nicole was talking about, You know, her experience as an art teacher, having to go uh, yeah. between buildings uh during her workday because you know she had j- jobs in different places and you know the effect that has on her ability to be a good teacher and two because this article was written in 1997 which is illustrative of how this problem has been around for a while and it hasn't gone away from what we've seen i'm i'm glad in particular that you brought up the point about what
1: how this influences an adjunct's ability to be a good teacher because it doesn't matter how much they teach, they're part-time. There are stories of adjuncts teaching up to 10 courses per semester. For reference, most full-time faculty are going to be teaching like three or four, and some, if they have heavy research or service commitments, might even only be teaching two. So these are people who are teaching four or five times the load than they're supposed to. Their median income is less than half of what full-time faculty make. And most of them are working more than full-time, especially if they're teaching at more than one institution, which something like 9 out of 10 do. It's a pretty ridiculous number. Mm -hmm. And also, these people, they don't get benefits. Mm -hmm. They don't get health insurance most of the time, specifically when the Affordable Care Act mandated that employers like universities would have to do that by virtue of the number of employees they have. Universities mostly responded by capping course loads so that adjuncts couldn't get health insurance through their employer now. And they don't even get support for their own personal research. So the thing that could turn them into a full-time faculty member in most places, they can't get the money to do that either. Mm -hmm. I, I contrast that with my teaching job where I To be fair, I don't have to do research, and that's not part of what the point of my job is. But, like, I feel overworked and not paid enough. And quite frankly, I'm a lot better paid than these people. I have a much lower course load. And I would say that there are times when I work similar hours, but they are pretty few and far between. Mm -hmm. And, and, And I have problems meeting all of my obligations and thinking that I did well by all of my students. I can't even imagine... What it's like for some of, uh, for an adjunct working in the environment that we have right now. Mm
3: -hmm. Furthermore, like a lot of these adjuncts, not only are they teaching a lot and getting not paid, uh, they have no idea what they're going to be doing from semester to semester. Um, you know, one semester they could be teaching five courses and the next semester the college couldn't cut all of them depending on lots of different factors. So it's, it's incredibly precarious way to live on top of being very well-educated and therefore probably severely in debt.
1: Mm-hmm. And educated to the point where other jobs just won't have you. Right. You know, they'll, they'll claim you're overqualified because you've got all these degrees and so on. And lest you think that this is something that people maybe go through at the beginning of their careers, this is increasingly a, a decades-long like. right. problem. Mm-hmm. The average length in a survey that was taken, I think, in 2015 – was the average length of adjuncting. So not total career, just being an adjunct was 10 years. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, if, if you want to take the metric of like a person's productive life or whatever, that's a, a fifth, a sixth of that gone down the drain for something that can't help you in advancement. I've got stories from uh, people I know who, you know, they, they will have worked as an adjunct in a particular department for years on end and full-time faculty spots will open up in that department and they'll repeatedly pass over to this person for even an interview, not even the promotion, just a chance at it. Sometimes they won't even tell this person that the interview is happening and he'll have to go find out from, you know, bulletin boards and things like that. Mm-hmm. So the mistreatment is systematic, it's cruel, and it's um, just
2: long-lasting, ultimately. It's an enduring thing. Lou, you would use the word precarious, and that's really a good word for this. You know, it's uncertainty. And in many ways, it parallels what we see in, like, the gig economy, because using clever, you know, definitions of the legal code, you know, these places are able to make their workers look like... Independent contractors. Freelancers, independent contractors. Make them look like they aren't actually... Deserving of benefits of healthcare or what have you, and that's a pattern throughout all of the economy, not just adjunct professors. But they're an example that you might not think of because, like you said, you know these are people with degrees. You know these are white collar professionals who are nevertheless making sometimes poverty wages. Usually,
1: actually, I think the median income is is ahead of poverty wages, but mm-hmm. it is not too uncommon for that to happen, especially because of what Lou said. Um, You talked about the inability to depend on assignment for semester to semester. So if you suddenly get dropped back on courses after you've been teaching, your income plunges immediately. And, And so you end up with adjuncts being on public assistance. You end up with adjuncts being homeless. You end up with adjuncts turning to things like sex work to make ends meet because there's you know, the the university is not actually doing what it should be doing and paying these people what they're worth.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and we've talked, you know, repeatedly on this show about you know the scourge of teachers having to work second jobs to make ends meet.
3: Yeah, no, like you said on the episode about with the two other teachers um, on their your, their union action, like it would be how much better would it be for the students. If their teachers didn't have to rush off to their next gig so, and 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 starve to death and et cetera
1: so so are you telling me that universities claim they care about their students, but they actually don't?
3: no yeah uh, hmm. yeah, it's true that's Cause, rough because ultimately this is this is a decision that these these universities and colleges have made. Um, this is not just the way it is. This is, an, this is something that they've chosen to to take part in. They've chosen to do this because it's cheaper. And again, this is a nonprofit. They're not supposed to really be caring about like, things like that. They're stretching their money so that they can build a new student commons that will have a f- Coke freestyle machine or something in it.
1: Yeah. Like, no that, who gives that crap? it's the same thing that we talked about in the last one in the last segment they're placing an arbitrary a college education ultimately is an arbitrary value
3: mm-hmm.
1: I if you put me in charge of that tomorrow I could decide that a college education was worth 1 penny and that that's all you have to pay for 4 years of college education mm-hmm. or I could decide it's free you don't have to pay anything and it wouldn't matter because I'm not giving you a thing that in any way can be determined by a market, what I'm giving you is the right to get a diploma from a university.
3: I saw a video years ago about whether or not high school students should consider college given the cost of it. And the conclusion the video reached was because the cost of tuition over four years is still less right now than the um, amount of extra money on average that a college student should be making, uh, with a college degree, it, then the college is still worth it, which is a terrible argument because ultimately you're saying you can charge as much as possible for college because it's still worth it. Right. It's terrible, awful.
2: And something I'd forgotten to mention in the last segment, but like, think about what is the marginal cost of adding another student at a college? You know, they don't have to build an extra dorm to house the one student. You know
1: they probably should, given the <laughs> overcrowding right.
2: problems on, at a lot of colleges mm-hmm. now. But you know that student might be paying ten, twenty thousand dollars, but it's not—they aren't costing the university that same amount of money. And mm-hmm. one of the justifications we've seen for this, you know, switch by many schools towards relying on adjuncts rather than full-time faculty is a reduction in public funding, which is also the reason for you know, tuition hikes. It's sort of a vicious cycle where not providing funds for education is getting people coming in and going out.
1: Yeah, no, it's, we had this, starting in the 80s and 90s, you had a bunch of um, so-called education governors that were anything but, that just started slashing education funding because they were smart-sizing it or right-sizing it or whatever the hell the term was. Um and just straight up privatizing parts of it, and looking for corporate sponsors, which is how you end up with, you know, public universities, sporting uh, institutes, and centers that are paid for by corporate money and that have a very explicit corporate outlook. Mm-hmm. But you can't. But they're they have the cachet and the sort of cover That's of being part of the publicancy. Ins-
2: exactly.
3: <laughs> 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 we call that philanthropy.
1: And so you end up with universities. Crying poor mm-hmm. towards uh, their athletes, as we talked about in the last segment. And their faculty. And their faculty. And it just it, – and,
3: and also all the service workers who work mm-hmm. there too. And, and the students. Yeah. Everybody.
1: U- ultimately towards everyone. And it just appends this idea because when you talk to people who had the ability to pay full freight, For their college education, you get a very different view of what a college education really teaches you. You hear a lot of high, uh, you hear a lot of lofty stuff about the life of the mind and about all of the knowledge that you got to absorb. But you look at people who actually had to make it work, you look at people who had a, a harder time, and you look at people like faculty, people like service workers who are directly affected by the exploitation of this university. And what you begin to realize is that in a way, universities never lost that feudal character that they used to have. Mm. They still in many ways consider themselves, you know, the replacement for the local count or Duke or whatever the heck. And they certainly want to treat their workers that way. The way that they treat their employees is basically, what else are you going to do? Yeah. You know, what what other game is there in town? You can't strike out on your own. You can't, as an independent scholar, go out there and say, I'm going to start my own educational institution. You can't. That's not going to happen. Nobody's gonna nobody's gonna rank you. Nobody's gonna credit you. They've created an entire architecture to make it impossible to challenge their lock on power. And yeah. then they have the gall to turn around and claim that they are bound by forces outside of their control. To some extent the public funding, I think, is is true, but mm-hmm.
2: it's But that's then in our control in theory. Yeah. You know? That's on voters to say actually Funding is good. Yeah. Yeah. Right, Education is worth paying for.
3: But we don't want to be funding them liberal institutions. (laughs) It's usually the right
2: That's true. (laughs) Uh,
1: You get a lot of people who don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even among the people who do, there's people who, you know, insist on looking for the inefficiencies and the redundancies and the waste. And what they don't realize when they start cutting those out is that A lot of the time, that's the floating funds that you can use Mm -hmm. towards, you know, covering for extra scholarships here or maybe, you know, helping out with a program there or maybe putting some money away for if you really do need to build a new building, that that money will be available later. But no, now you can't have that. So you have to turn towards rich people. You have to turn towards the exact kind of people who are the least invested in our public education system.
3: Again, tangentially related. I really hate how we have to pay attention and care about what the stock market is doing because every... Every aspect of our life is turned in it is pulled into the stock market. So your endowment at your school is probably mm-hmm. partially funded through stock market dividends. Your insurance company may not raise your rates quite so much because of stock market dividends. Your retirement. And your retirement, all of these aspects of it while you know, the uber-wealthy are making 10 times which your little retirement fund could be making. Uh, and that's the same thing, is is these really rich people have the power to make these decisions about our education and our future and these little things that matter.
1: They're able to run up the score. Yeah. It, it comes back to that, because not only are they able to, and, and we talked about this on the student debt episode, not only are they able to crush funding for public institutions because oftentimes public universities are one of the few bastions of any real public spirit left, which is really sad when you consider what we're talking about here and and how universities function in the real world. But they are able to slash funding for public institutions. They're able to control what goes on at them. And then they're able to create um, a structural, they're able to widen structural inequalities so that students, especially students of color, especially students who come from unprivileged backgrounds who might be first-generation college students, students with disabilities, uh, women in general going to educational institutions, have a much harder time navigating both that uh, experience and its aftermath, which allows them to
2: further further widen that inequality with each successive generation. Mm Along with this increased emphasis on students needing to go to college has been this shift away from full-time faculty towards part-time. And what that ends up with for a lot of people are people who got degrees, you know, expecting they'd at least be able to become an academic off of it, are now finding that that wasn't a ticket to the middle-class lifestyle they maybe expect. They're getting shuffled into these adjunct positions rather than having the security of a full-time job. You know, as a professor.
3: Yeah, generally speaking, unless you go to one of, like, an Ivy or something mm-hmm. and study under a celebrity professor, there's almost no hope in academia yeah. of you getting out of that with a decent job.
1: I mean, I'm a perfect example of this. I did my degree in classics at a school that's not especially well-known for doing classics. Had I been able to get into a really top-tier Classic school and done my graduate work there and worked with good advisors and all of that stuff. I might have had a pretty good shot at getting a full time job after a couple fellowships or something like that. Mm-hmm. But that I wasn't as interested in research and committee work as I wasn't just teaching. And so it was much easier to just take that way out. Um, but I know people who are genuinely much more gifted academics than I would have ever been and just cannot contribute to the overall body of knowledge mm-hmm. because they're being shut out of any opportunity to do so. And that's a real cost to all of us. Mm-hmm. Like, I know this all seems kind of froofy and, you know, overly intellectual, but I, I think in many ways we have given up on even the the, the pretense of an intellectual life existing. Mm-hmm.
2: And I, I think there's a parallel to something you had discussed on the teaching episode last week was it yeah yeah at this point um when you know you talked about how teachers don't stay in classrooms very long before they're on to or at least some of them are on to administrative work and they're out Mm -hmm. of the classroom and you know in so many different ways there are these discouragements to you know ending up in the classroom either through because the benefits and pay aren't enough for you to live on or because the administrative work is made so much more, you know, eye-catching and appealing. The mm-hmm. The end result is that, you know, the people who should be teaching often aren't.
1: Yeah. Well, and to be fair, I think a lot of people I know who, who have become administrators, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that they were bad teachers because yeah. usually they actually weren't. <laughs> but there were, in many cases, there were people who were always, I think, temperamentally or... Mm-hmm. Um, not suited philosophically for suited much more to administration because they were the type who, you know, wanted to manage people. But and there's a place for that. But
2: what I'm talking about is losing good teachers to these administrative positions, mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. which is an even bigger deal in college because what ends up happening is that you get two tiers of professors. You've got the people who are doing all of the freaking work and getting paid you know pennies and then the people who earn the university grants who fundraise who are probably many of them complaining that they don't get enough time to do the actual work of being an academic mm-hmm. but the university needs them and rewards them because they bring money in mm-hmm. and when that becomes the main measure of how good you of what an asset you are to the university once again you sacrifice what the actual point of the institution is for this really warped vision
2: We'll be back after this break, and we're going to wrap up the show by talking about uh, grad students and the ways colleges are doing the same things to them. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYO 104.3. If you enjoy our show, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out WAYO. If you'd like to share your stories, you can email us at PunchingOutWAYO at gmail.com. Back to the show.
3: Guys, welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Lou. I'm joined this week by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Ryan. Hi. Uh, we've been talking about colleges and their labor and how they're not very nice to labor, whether they're student athletes or adjuncts or now, as we're going to discuss, grad students. Mm-hmm. So grad students have it rough, huh?
1: I mean, yeah. They're. Um, let Let's just start by painting the picture, sort of in general. Typically speaking, they're not paid very well, as you might expect from if you've been listening to the episode. (laughs) They usually have shaky benefits at best. And typically speaking, for any grievances or anything like discrimination or harassment, they usually have to go through the university sort of internal procedures, which, again, if you've been listening to the episode, are literally never not going to favor the institutional framework of the university. And this is, uh, these are the general problems. If you happen to be a graduate assistant who is also an international student, you have it, you probably have it even worse. Uh, as it is, graduate students are often working full-time mm-hmm. weeks, whether they're supposed to or not, but there's apparently stories of international students working like 60 or 80 hour weeks at some places. Now, why is that? Um basically because there's very little oversight of them compared to if you're a US citizen and you know you're you're going through a whole thing which is not surprising we've uh if you if you go out into sort of the I guess non-academic labor market that's still the case mm-hmm. it's just that again it's particularly depressing to see institutions that are supposed to be centers of education and liberal attitudes and all of those other things that the right wing hates about them hmm. turn out to be much more like those right wing corporations than uh, they should be.
3: Yeah. yeah. Partly because they're just corporations full stop. Yep. Exactly. So, so grad students are unfortunately in this kind of weird gray area where they're both students and workers. So unlike other students where they're paying the school, to To do work or to get mm-hmm. an education, grad students are, are partially paying the school, partially getting paid by the school right? in some cases. So it, it puts them in this really strange area where they don't have the same options that students do or workers do. Like if you're getting an education from them and the school says part of your education is going to be teaching, uh, you can't really just say, no, I'm going to walk away and teach somewhere else.
2: If If they're counting that, you know, the value of that education, which as we've talked about on this episode is kind of nebulous, into your stipend or your pay, then generally that's going to mean less money, less cash Mm -hmm. in your
1: pocket. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: You know, at your typical job, there isn't
1: like a diploma you get at the end that says so-and-so is now a fully qualified whatever it is that you did, widget maker, right? Whereas in the case of a graduate student, you're doing those assistantships and fellowships and grants and whatever the heck else you're doing because you're supposed to get a degree at the end, which means that there are a lot of people who have the power to make your life and and the pursuit of that degree much more difficult, especially if you stand up for yourself and your fellow students.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was part of the part of the issue with the Florian Yeager thing uh, from the U of R is the grad students that needed to work with him in order to advance their careers and get an education, were being systematically abused. uh, But they didn't have much choice in that. They didn't. And there was no way for them to actually file a grievance that was, as we know now, dealt with in a way that was equitable or just.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, no. And in every possible way, the university sets up this relationship again in a feudal way. You're put in charge of... You're put in the you know, literally in the charge of a professor. Like it's not just th- this person is not just going to be your uh, teacher and your advisor. They are also going to be your boss. Mm-hmm. And that creates a lot of perverse incentives, especially uh, especially when a lot of people who maybe shouldn't be in charge of people have to handle graduate students. And and there's a lot of those in academia, as, as is becoming extremely clear <laughs> in the last couple decades.
2: And one of the things that adds to the pressure for graduate students is the reason they're after this degree in so many cases is they want one of those few professor jobs that are still around. They yeah. want the ability to boss around future grad students, admittedly, but also to avoid you know the part-time and the instability of adjunct work. Or, or they just want another
1: job because degree creep is a real thing. Mm-hmm. The, uh, jobs that used to require, you know, no, no college degree now require a bachelor's. Jobs that used to require a bachelor's now require a master's. And God help you, there are degre- there are jobs that used to require, you know, a bachelor's and a master's would be nice that now you have to have a freaking doctorate to do. Mm-hmm. Literally. Uh, that's not an exaggeration. Th- there's an entire way in which we've set up society to require people to go through this whole rigmarole and then expose them to abuse at every step of it.
2: One of the things we saw in the recession was the so-called skills gap. You know, employers were looking, had all these demands of would-be employees, you know, the added degrees, all this experience. And, you know, as a result was this increased pressure to get those degrees and experience, you know. And what we're seeing now as, you know, the economy improves somewhat is that, there wasn't really a gap. It was just, you know, employers had more power to demand yeah. more.
3: Mm-hmm. So when it comes to grad students, because they're put in this really awkward position, they they can be systematically abused. That's the only way to put it. Mm-hmm.
2: And maybe the through point through this whole episode is that there's usually a light at the end of the tunnel that makes people feel these things are worth it at the time. If you're an athlete, you're going through the NCAA Mm -hmm. in some cases because there is the prospect of getting a professional contract afterwards, which will be highly lucrative in most cases. If you're an adjunct, you're doing all that in the hopes that one day you will not be an adjunct anymore. You will be a full-time professor. And it's much the same for many grad students. And that has the effect of sort of reducing Demands from below it, it makes people less willing to say, "No, I deserve better than what I have now if, yeah. you know there's that lingering prospect of something better in the future, whether it will come or not
1: yeah. which is which is why it's particularly heartening to see that in many places grad students aren't uh they they are refusing to just sit there and take what the university hands out to them. Uh, Ryan shared with us an article about graduate students at the University of Hawaii trying to organize they 've been doing it for something like five years, and they 've been asking for things that are you know not outlandish better pay health insurance you know the the ability to earn enough money that they can maybe afford a car and yeah. and get to and from campus or just be able to live a relatively comfortable life so that they can focus on their work. And the university's response to this has basically been a union will solve none of these problems. Yes, it would.
3: <laughs> Absolutely, would.
1: And uh, they're supposed to be students first and workers second. No, mm-hmm. they're both.
2: Which, you know, sounds very familiar to the anti-student uh, athlete argument. Mm-hmm. And this will cost us money. So, you know, in in this
1: particular case, the University of Hawaii said, okay, well, we're going to ask for $2.2 million in 2020 and 2021 to fund you guys better. But when you look at how much that means per person, that's basically 700 bucks. That's less than, even, even with how little they're getting paid, that's less than half a paycheck.
3: It was really astonishing to me that grad students aren't given health insurance right off the bat, because I remember being... For my undergrad, the university straight up said if you don't have insurance through your parents or whatever, we will give you insurance. It's it's literally that easy, especially since a lot of universities like the U of R are associated with hospitals and medical centers and everything like that. Like there's mm-hmm. one in almost every town.
1: Which, by the way, those are those medical schools and hospitals and so on are such profit centers that in many cases the university – I know I keep – harping on the arbitrary value of a college education. But in many cases the university could literally charge zero dollars to mm-hmm. all of its students and still break even or make a profit just out of the services it provides yeah. through those healthcare institutions.
3: Yeah. And once again, these are these institutions across the board are all considered not for profits. Mm-hmm. Not for profits. Like that's what they do. They bring in this money and any surplus money is is reinvested and and put back into the stock market to grow the endowment. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's a scam. Yep. It is. It's a scam.
2: 100%. And in the case of public universities, you know, it is entirely possible for us to fund those through public money rather than mm-hmm. r- asking students to pay tuition. You know, we could make tuition-free college happen really quite easily. That mm-hmm. On a federal level, it would cost less than what we increased the military budget by last year. It's not that expensive of a program. Look, we need planes that catch on fire
1: (laughs) and that are useless if you, like, (laughs) drag your finger across the special stealth paint. And we need ships (laughs) that are allergic to water. Okay? We need those in the Navy. It's important. Okay? (laughs) I can't believe you would say things like that on this show.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That was extreme. sarcasm, guys. But,
1: again, grad students – maybe because they're caught in this particular weird sort of gray area are actually using that to their benefit. So we just talked about the example at the University of Hawaii in um, in universe in the University of California system, there is a, I guess somewhat, Long-standing for the standards mm-hmm. that we're talking about here, student worker union that has been able to increase benefits like leave mm-hmm. and and increase benefits like and increase pay and working and get better working conditions. Mm-hmm. So these are things that are definitely doable by universities. They're just betting that the majority of people simply Won't don't care, care enough. Yeah,
2: because yeah. so often you see grad student unions in the media passed off as. Not a serious issue. It's the demands of a few, you know, liberal college students, you know,
3: whiny people who just want handouts.
2: Yeah, I mean, we literally just had, you know,
1: Democratic presidential candidate and former Vice President Joe Biden referring to people who wanted student loan refinancing or amnesty as literally whiny people who want a handout. <laughs> so that's that's the climate that we're dealing with. You look at what you look at what graduate student unions are asking for. At Harvard, the main thing they're actually asking for is uh, a new grievance procedure—the ability to take things to a third-party arbitrator. Which you know we've talked before about the ways in which arbitration can be crap. That was the Neil Gorsuch episode, mm-hmm. but they have very good reason to believe that Harvard will always cover up harassment by its own professors, and we just talked about a local case where that <laughs> pretty much happened. Mm-hmm and they want to prevent that from happening in the future. We have here an example from Ohio University where what they're asking for is things like parental leave. And here's a big one, in reducing or subsidizing graduate fees because the university says, oh no, They're not paying us. We're paying them. We waive their tuition. We fund them. But that's not actually true in most cases. So those students still have to pay graduate fees and apparently often have to pay them even when, so they often have to pay them even when they're not currently attending class just to stay enrolled. And the only way you get that waiver is if you have an assistantship, which is how you get exposed to, you know, all the uh, employee style abuses of wage theft or getting put in, inflexible uh, scheduling, things like that. And depending on your institution, a lot of graduate students may not have that. So they might actually be paying in more to the university than they're getting back from it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And these are people who, by definition, already have degrees, but their working conditions and what they're asking for are not too different from anybody else's. This is; These are conditions that... The modern worker can expect degree or no degree that you know it's not great
1: yeah and and that's an important lesson to be learned here that we think of a college education, and you hear all the time in polling and in political questions this idea that you know the college educator are kind of unto their own thing, and that's not really true because the institutions that they're involved in are also not that different from the institutions that the rest of the working class and the, and the rest of society is involved with, it's the same everywhere else. The person who benefits from their college degrees is the same as the person who benefits uh, in any other industry, which is uh, once they learn to sit on their ass and make money from other people doing things. That, that's, that's literally the key trick in, in the economy, no matter whether you have no degree, a bachelor's, a master's, or a PhD, or whatever.
2: We usually like to end punching out on a positive note, but we're not sure if that's going to happen this week. Oh, I've got one for you. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> on
1: March 19th, which I think when this episode comes out will be a couple weeks, Yeah. Um, university of Illinois Chicago, their graduate students through the Graduate Employment Organization are going to start an indefinite strike. Ooh. They're calling a full tools down to argue for better pay and better working conditions at their university. So if there's going to be a positive note at the end of this episode, let's, let's make it that we stand in full solidarity with them.
3: Heck oh, yeah. yeah.
2: This is a bleak conversation at times, but an important one. Um, I'm glad we had it. I'm Ryan. I'm Noah. And I'm Lou. This is Punching Out. Punchin out. Punchin out.
0: You've been listening punchin out. to Punching Out,